Hi everyone, and welcome to The Seed Podcast, part of our teaching ministry here at the Central Church in Fayette, Alabama. The Seed exists for one reason only, and that is to lift up the Word of God in order that Jesus Christ might be known and worshipped as King. We invite you to join us now as we dive in to today's message. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is quite uncontrollable, uncontainable, overwhelming. You can't get your arms around him, and if you could, he wouldn't be worth serving. Wouldn't be a God if we could get our arms around him, and therefore wouldn't be much of a source of grace or peace. What peace can there be if if I can't handle it? How could the God that I made handle it? But the God who cannot be contained, He can handle it. He alone can give me grace and give me peace. I want to show you something this morning as we we start digging into the second commandment. You shall not make any graven images, no carved images. Most versions today will say... I want to show you something from a little town. It's it's about four miles south of Megiddo. You might have heard of Megiddo before. Armageddon is a play on the town of Megiddo. Uh, About four miles south from there is a town you probably haven't heard of. It's called Ta'anak in northern Israel. It is in the Bible, but we normally don't talk very much about Ta'anak. Paul was... um, he appeared before Felix and Festus in the town of Caesarea on the Mediterranean. This is about 20 miles straight inland, straight east from there. And they've done some archaeological digs there in Ta'anak. This object right here, it was excavated and it belongs to roughly the 10th century B.C. Now, when I say the 10th century B.C., be thinking about David, Solomon, Jeroboam, That was kind of the time period that this right here was made, which actually was a really rough time period in northern Israel. If you read through the Scripture, Scripture uh, often criticizes, not supports the way that Israel was walking with their God. Scripture says that Solomon's heart was turned to other gods by his wives. The, The kingdom was given to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, but he didn't keep it for very long. It was ripped away from Rehoboam and split in two. The northern kingdom was given to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which is one of the most infamous names in all of Scripture. Jeroboam doesn't want people going back down to, to worship in Jerusalem because then their hearts might be knit back to the southern kingdom. Jeroboam doesn't want that, so he erects golden calves in Dan, and Bethel, places where people can worship without having to go down to Jerusalem the way the Torah instructs them to do. And so this this was a really bad time in Israelite history. And and this picture that you see here on the screen, this is sort of a, a visual depiction of what Israel was dealing with right around the 10th century. Um, there's four layers to it. Let's kind of point these out to you. You might already, I showed this to one of my kids, and I, I think Molly immediately knew what this was right here. That's a throne. And in the middle of the throne, you have a horse with wings. Here's his wings right here. And he's got a sun disc on his back. So uh, a throne with a horse and a sun disc. Uh, you, you might be familiar with some of the pagan 
rituals of the day. Many of the pagan religions worshipped the sun, had some kind of sun worship incorporated into them. We know from the Bible that Yahweh's people tried to mix Yahweh worship with sun worship. Sometimes they worshipped Yahweh as though he were the sun, or the sun as though it were Yahweh. Uh, you go over to 2 Kings 23, the, the young King Josiah, who was so, uh, one of the best kings they ever had, made a lot of reforms. One of his reforms was he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. At the entrance of the house of the Lord, he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. So, so you went to Yahweh's temple in that day, and in the temple were horses dedicated to the sun. Uh, you see that here uh, in this little idol stand. Ezekiel 8, one of the idolatries that Yahweh showed Ezekiel through a vision. He said, Behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. So, here in this, this is called a cult stand. In this little cult stand, you can see what it's like when they mixed Yahweh worship with sun worship and the Canaanite religions of the day. You, you have a second layer, which is uh, a similar compromise here. This is a tree, most likely an Asherah pole. You've, you've heard of those before. It's, it's situated between two lions. Lions are symbols of the tribe of Judah. So you have this, this mixture here of Asherah worship and Yahweh worship. I'm going to skip the third layer for now. The fourth layer, uh, cover your eyes, it's a uh, that's Asherah herself. She's a, a nude idol there, holding the ears again of two lions. So Asherah and Yahweh worship mixed. Now, this, this third layer is what I really want to show you. This one's very interesting. What you have on either side here are two sphinxes, which represent the cherubim uh, that you read about in the Bible. But right between the cherubim, what do you have there? You have an empty space. It's an intentional empty space in this cult stand. Now, why would you make an idol of an empty space? Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the sea or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So, you make an empty space because God told you not to make any image. Now, I think this is still breaking the second commandment. I don't think they're, they're successful in what they're trying to do here, but you can kind of see the reasoning. God said don't make any graven images. Okay, we won't represent Yahweh by anything but an empty space. But it's, it's laughable. The, the mixture of the, the paganry and the the idolatry with the, hey, we're not doing, look, we even gave Yahweh a level within our worship. We're doing what you said. We didn't make an image of you. It's, this is a picture of what was going on in the northern kingdom about the time of King Solomon, King Jeroboam. Major <laughs> cognitive dissonance. Major cognitive dissonance. Trying to worship idols while at the same time not worshiping idols. You kind of get the confusion that's going on here. I want to take you back to Israel's first experience making idols. We've been there a lot, Exodus 20, if you want to go there this morning. We've been here a lot. This was the first time Israel made an idol. 
uh, hear about, well, the story starts in Exodus 20, but we'll get to it following from there. Uh, as we think about this temptation to serve idols, even though you know you're not supposed to be an idol-worshiping people, the temptation that they faced, I, I want to find ourselves in it as well. I think it comes against us in, in a different kind of way. But, but this struggle where we're tempted to make idols, I want to, like we did last week, kind of look at what is the lure? What's the motivation to fall into this kind of worship confusion? So, so Exodus 20, we're at the foot of Mount Sinai. We've talked about this before, how God came down and out of the heavens did what he never had done before and never has done since. He spoke his law to the people himself out of the thunder and the lightning. They heard it from him directly. They said, what, what was their reaction? Please never again. Please never again. When all the people heard the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now, I want you to get in your mind just how terrifying an experience this must have been. I mean, if, if you can just close your eyes and put yourself in their shoes where that the mountain is smoking and there's thunder and there's lightning. It's just this overwhelming, must feel like the earth is just crushing in on you kind of, what must it be like to stand in front of the presence of Almighty God as He is speaking to you and He's making His presence and His glory heavy and known to you. Just imagine how terrifying of an experience that must have been. And they said, we can't handle it. Moses, we want you to talk to God, but we can't handle that. So, okay, fine. So Moses, it says, draws near to the darkness where God was. He draws into the presence of God. And for about three chapters, Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23, into 24, God starts giving Moses some laws right there. Um, it's, it's interesting. The very first one might be a bit of foreshadowing. He says, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. We'll get to that one in just a minute. That was the first thing he said to Moses when the people said, we can't talk to him, please talk to him for us. But for about three chapters, he gives God, uh, Moses a few laws, and then he invites Moses up onto the mountain. Come up here with me onto the mountain, Moses. Exodus 24, Moses enters the cloud, goes up onto the mountain, and he's on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So, so you've, got, you've got the chain of events here. Okay, They come to the mountain Thunder, lightning, they are terrified in the presence of God. Moses, please go talk to God for us. We can't handle it. Moses goes onto the mountain. He's gone a little more than a month. Okay, that's, that's the picture we have here. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, according to the pagan religions that they were familiar with in that day, rose up to play does not mean they organized a tribal volleyball tournament. It's not that. It's pagan play. And I'll just leave it at that. You can imagine just what they were engaged with just 40 days after they had heard the voice of God. After God had given Moses some laws, and in, in Exodus 24, he gives them just a few that, that God had already given to them, and they said, we'll do all of it. All that Yahweh has said, we will do. We will worship this God. And here we are 40 days later playing the way that pagans play. I want you to compare and contrast the two very, two, two very different experiences that Israel had with their gods. First of all, you have the one true God. The one true God. That God is uncontainable. That God is uncontrollable. That God is overwhelming. That God is fierce. That God terrifies them. In the presence of that God, they are small, they are powerless, they are laid bare, they are exposed, they are vulnerable, they are completely at the mercy of the one. He may do anything, or worse yet, he may ask you to do anything at any given moment. You don't know. You don't control him. You don't get to second guess him. He might very well send you face to face with the most violent and powerful and terrifying enemy that you can think of with just a stick in your hand. And you have no idea whether you're going to, to die for the cause or that stick is going to split an ocean. You have no idea what's coming next with the one true God. He terrifies you. In short, that God is God. Worthy of being named God. On the other hand, there is another God who is containable, that is controllable, a God you can get your arms around. Literally, you can get your arms around this other God. This God is not so terrifying. This God is not so overwhelming. This God does not speak in the language of thunder and lightning and earthquake. This God makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Makes us feel a little bit of pride, you know. I made that God. I, I carved that God out of my gold. It was my offerings that fashioned that God. That God invites us to feast and to play. That God gratifies our desires. And as a matter of fact, it's, it's very rare, if ever, that that God asks us to do anything that's not gratifying to ourselves. So there you have it. You've got the uncontainable, terrifying, uncontrollable God of heaven, and you've got the containable, gratifying God of my own hands. And in the absence of the prophet, it's pretty obvious what men choose. And men make idols because they are terrified of an uncontainable God. Even today, I'm terrified of an uncontainable God been reading uh, this book by Joy Davidman. It was written in 1955, I believe it is. If you've never heard of Joy Davidman, uh, she was this, this brilliant American poet and writer. Uh, she was a brilliant atheist as well. Uh, but through some crises in her life, she came to no faith. She was a secular Jew by birth. 
Uh, she came to know faith. She came to know God. Actually, through the writings of C.S. Lewis, Joy Davidman found conversion in about the 1940s. Now, 1956, she marries C.S. Lewis. So she was a, a prominent American writer herself. C.S. Lewis, his writings bring her to faith. She has the opportunity to meet C.S. Lewis, and she eventually marries C.S. Lewis. One year later, 1957, she's diagnosed with incurable cancer. She dies in 1960. If you've ever heard of uh, A Grief Observed, that is a book that was published out of C.S. Lewis's journalings through his grief at losing his wife, Joy. But uh, her, her best known book, she published in 1955, the year before she married C.S. Lewis, and it's an interpretation of the Ten Commandments. I want to read you her introduction to the Second Commandment. She writes, What shape is an idol? I worship a fishtail Cadillac convertible, brother. All my days I give it offerings of oil and polish. Hours of my time are devoted to its ritual, and it brings me luck in all my undertakings. And it establishes me among my fellows as a success in life. What model is your car, brother? I worship my house, beautiful sister. Long and loving meditation have I spent on it. The chairs contrast with the rug. The, cart the curtains harmonize with the woodwork. All of it is perfect and holy. I live only for the service of my house. And it rewards me with the envy of my sisters, who must rise up and call me blessed. What shape is your idol, sister? Is it your house or your clothes or perhaps even your worthwhile and cultural club? I worship the pictures I paint, brother. I worship my job. I worship my golf game. I worship my comfort. I worship my church. I want to tell you the work we've done in missions beats all the other denominations in this city. I worship myself. What shape is your idol? What is an idol? What, what is it? An idol is the God that we prefer because we can get our arms around it so that we don't have to deal with the terrifying and uncontainable God of heaven. That's what an idol is. It's the God that I prefer because I control it and therefore I don't have to deal with an uncontrollable God. An idol is a sure path to recognition and security, and gratification, and status, the God of heaven may well ask me to be a nobody. Or the God of heaven might throw me in the lines, Dan, you want to be a somebody? They're not going to forget this. We don't know. Where is the God of heaven leading me? What can he do? What will he do? It's completely out of my hands. An idol, on the other hand, is not quite so scary. It is terrifying to worship the God who is a consuming fire. It's terrifying to worship the God who is a consuming fire. If you're not worshiping a God that overwhelms you right now, you might want to check and just make sure it's not an idol that you're worshiping. If you're God, if you feel like you've kind of got the God thing under control, you might want to check that you haven't fashioned a God-shaped idol but because the God of heaven can't be brought under control. There's always an element of this God that is scary, that is challenging, that is uncomfortable. This, if, if your God never confronts you, never convicts you, never pushes you, never makes you uncomfortable, it may very well be a golden 
calf, and it is not worthy of worship, and it is powerless, and it will destroy you. You might even have one level reserved in your worship for the one true God. An aspect of that worship where you say, look, God, I have listened to your word. I've done what you said. I have honored you in my worship, God. But it's, only, it's laughable because it's surrounded by all these other layers in which I've invited the other gods in. And I'm trying to worship the one true, but I'm trying to worship this one also at the same time. I'm both an idolater and a non-idolater just a contradiction. I've become a contradiction. So, so what do we do about idols? Uh, Paul, I want to go to Galatians as we kind of wrap up and, 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 and we ask, where do we go from here? How, how do I address my idols? Paul was speaking to a people in Galatia who had come out of idols and were tempted to go back into idols. And like any good preacher, he gives them three points to reflect on. Galatians 4, this was their situation. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Okay, you used to serve idols, you came to know God, now you're tempted to go back into idols. He's talking to me. Okay, I can use this. What does he say? How, how do I approach that? How do I address this problem? First thing, Galatians 5, 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. These idols that we serve because they gratify our flesh, they gratify my pride. I made this idol. I'm so proud of my works. They gratify our desires. I can rise up and play in the presence of this idol, what do we do about them? He says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Lean into the presence of the Spirit. If, if you have come into the family of God, Peter makes this promise abundantly clear. The Holy Spirit comes to live within you. I lean into the Spirit and therefore break free of the idols that I formerly worshipped. Practically, it might look like this prayer. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. I love, love, love this prayer. David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When we live a life that's in tune with the Spirit, the Spirit identifies the idols in our life. He leads us in the better way, the way of everlasting life out of the grievous way that we formerly walked. And when I lean into the Spirit and I pray, Spirit, show me. If, if I'm worshiping any idols right now and I'm ignorant of that, if, I, if I'm not aware of what I'm doing, show me. Light them up. And, and, and then as I lean into you, break them off of my life. The Spirit loves to break idols off of Christians' lives. The second thing, Paul says, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What do you do when the Spirit points to your idols? You've got to repent. You've got to repent. You can listen to sermons like this Sunday after Sunday. You can pray to the Spirit every day. But there comes a point where you either let Him crucify that idol or you don't. 
got to make a decision. I've got to open myself up and say, yes, crucify it, get it out of the way. If I want to worship, if I truly want to worship the one true God, I've got to stop protecting my idols. You ever do that? You ever protect your idols? Okay, I remember one time I was trying to get rid of cigarettes in my life. And, and the way that I did that, I took my pack of cigarettes and I gently laid it in the trash can. There, I threw them away. You know what I did the next day? I went and I gently picked those cigarettes back out of the trash can. You see how that works? We, we don't want to just throw them gently away. We want to tear them into a million pieces and burn them. We, we protect our idols all, all too often. I've been look, looking at things I shouldn't look at. What do I do about it? Well, I'll just stop. I just won't do it anymore. Won't put any accountability in my life. Won't, won't tell anybody about it. Won't get any help for it, but I'll just stop. Well, that's, that's, that's protecting that idol. You can just pick it up the next day. I've, I've got this relationship in my life that I know is toxic. Well, I just, I won't call them. Won't say anything about it. I, look, it'll be back tomorrow. Stop protecting the idols. We've got to crucify them, crucify them, allow the Holy Spirit to destroy them because we want to see them destroyed. We don't want to see them resurrected back to life. And lastly, don't do it alone. Galatians 6, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you too are, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If we try to fight our idols alone, we will fail. Idols love two situations, two circumstances. Number one, peer pressure. When the crowd is doing it and the crowd is bringing you along with them, they love peer pressure. And, and they also love the opposite, secrecy and privacy. If the crowd around you is godly and therefore might bring some accountability to your life, I would rather just stick my idol in the closet and not let anybody see it. It brings me shame. I don't like to talk about it. Idols love bad peer pressure and they love privacy and secrecy. We need godly peer pressure in our lives. It's what we call accountability. Brothers and sisters who love me, they're not just sitting there waiting to tell me how bad I am and, and, and how I deserve to be the lowest of the low. No, they love me and they can't wait to lift me up and out of this idolatry. Don't do it alone. Bear one another's burdens. Godly role models. Accountability that I do life with. We bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you would please pray with me. Father God, we... We pray that you would, at this moment, be moving in each and every one of our hearts. As we know that your Spirit lives within us, identify our idols. Father, help us to, to see them for what they are. To, to acknowledge that they make our life unlivable. That they steal life and steal joy from us. Every time that we turn away to worship a God that we fashion, a God that we can control, and we turn away from you because you are uncontrollable. We don't know what you're going to do next. But, but any time we turn to a God of our crafting, Father, we know what, that we turn our back against life and that we invite destruction into our own lives. These idols never pay what they promise. 
They always steal. They always drain. So, Father, we know, we know this is not what we want. But, Father, so many times we're just, we're blind to them. Whether willfully blind or truly ignorant, Father, we, we don't see them. So, by your Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that you would illuminate truth on these things. Help us to see our idols for what they are. Father, give us the strength to crucify. Or rather, turn them over to you to be crucified. Give us the courage to stop protecting our idols and to actually turn them over to be destroyed. Help us to desire the destruction of our idols, not just freedom from the consequences of our idols, but truly desiring their destruction and so doing whatever is necessary to see to it that they are destroyed. Crucify our idols, God. And Father, knit us together as we find strength in one another, in, in healing and encouragement in one another. Father, do this through us as a body. Father, I pray that you would do this and so many more. Father, use us, use this place as, as a beacon of healing here in this community. Father, I, I pray that from this place you would send us out into the community with the message of true life and that idols would be falling all around us in this community through your power. Father, we pray, we pray for our families, that the idols that have been set up in our families, maybe four generations back, would be falling, and that our families and this church and this community would be a place of true healing, a place of your kingdom. Father, we pray all of these things, knowing that by the power that is in the Holy Spirit, that is in us through the Spirit of Christ, Father, you can and will do these things. And so, Father, we pray knowing and believing that all things are possible in you. Father, we pray now as a church family. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And amen. We thank you again for joining us this week at Central. And may the Lord Jesus Christ be magnified in your life today. Thank you.